Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Sobolewski, and today we're going to be talking about rapid sequence intubation. And now, without further ado, allow me to introduce my guest host for this episode, an amazing senior resident from Cincinnati Children's, Preston Dean. Take it away, Preston. Thank you for having me, Brad. I'm very excited to be doing this. In this episode, we will be talking about one of the most critically important but increasingly rare procedures in the pediatric emergency department, endotracheal intubation. Now imagine the following scenario, which as a resident, I have experienced firsthand. You are early in your training with little to no intubation experience. You are rotating in a critical care setting, i.e. the emergency department, the PICU, or the NICU. You have a patient that is decompensating and has either pending respiratory failure or is losing the ability to protect their airway. Your team looks at you and says, would you like to try? After the initial rush of blood from your head to certain GI sphincters in your body, you muster the courage to put on a confident front and say, of course. However, you have only intubated a few mannequins and you don't feel very confident internally. The fear associated with this common scenario is well-founded, as opportunities for endotracheal intubation are limited and the procedure comes with significant risks for serious adverse effects. Going through this scenario firsthand prompted me to take an interest in pediatric intubation, and the desire to deliver this podcast to you comes from my experiences as a resident. Now let's first talk about some of the evidence before we get into the details of the procedure itself. As pediatric residents, how good are we at intubating? The literature says, not great. Recent studies have shown first-pass success rates for pediatric residents range from 21 to 40%. In 2013, Sanders et al. published a high-quality, multi-center, prospective study of endotracheal intubation success rates based on training level across 15 PICUs nationwide. First attempt success rate for residents was 37%, compared to 70% for fellows and 72% for attending physicians. On multivariate analysis, fellows had an odds ratio of 4.3 for first attempt success compared to pediatric residents. Additionally, studies that have evaluated success rates of residents by postgraduate year have consistently shown increasing success rates with increasing years in training. The ACGME requires competency in neonatal endotracheal intubation for pediatric residents, but does not require competency in older children. Studies have shown, not unexpectedly, that the number of opportunities for residents is insufficient to gain proficiency or reliable competency that can translate to safe patient care. A 2005 retrospective review of neonatal intubations by Leon et al. found that residents with 20 or more attempts had a 49% success rate versus 37% in residents with less than 20 attempts. Although 49% is less than ideal, there is clearly an improvement with experience. Not only are pediatric endotracheal intubations technically difficult, but there is a potential for serious adverse outcomes from the procedure, including oxyhemoglobin desaturation, bradycardia, hypotension, and cardiac arrest. Studies have shown risk factors for adverse effects include younger age, longer attempts and cumulative time of attempts, and a respiratory indication for intubation, as opposed to trauma, status epilepticus, or altered mental status. In general, these adverse outcomes are more common than when it was initially thought. Oxyhemoglobin desaturation rates in pediatric range from 33 to 47%, compared to 1 to 26% in adult studies. A 2012 study by Carey in Annals of Emergency Medicine showed that on video review, 61% of patients intubated in the ED had adverse effects, with 33% having oxyhemoglobin desaturation. These adverse effects were likely more common in trainees, as multivariate analysis revealed that attendings had an adjusted odds ratio of 10.0 for first-pass success compared to trainees. This work led to the implementation of a structured checklist for rapid-sequence intubation, which you can listen to Ben Carey himself talk about on a previous episode of PEM Currents. 
Now, not only are attendings much safer at intubating patients than residents, but in the previously discussed study by Sanders et al., fellows were much less likely to have intubation-associated adverse effects compared to pediatric residents, with an odds ratio of 0.42. Now that I have your attention about why this topic is important, let's walk through a step-by-step process to help prepare the novice trainee for endotracheal intubation under stressful situations. I recommend that you make yourself familiar with the selection of equipment, choice of medications during intubation, and room setup and positioning to decrease cognitive burden during a live and likely stressful intubation attempt. There will inevitably be variance with each intubation. Knowing and understanding the parts of the procedure that you can control will help you focus on variance and, more importantly, stay calm when intubating. First, we will talk about selecting tube size and depth of insertion. For tube diameter, use a patient's age, divide that by 4, and then add 4 for uncuffed tubes. And a patient's age divided by 4 plus 3.5 for cuff tubes, maxing out at 7.5 to 8 in teens. For depth of insertion, use three times endotracheal tube diameter at the lip. Of course, these are only estimates and do not apply for extremes of age, including neonates. Both tube size and depth of insertion estimates are also listed on PALS resuscitation cards. When you are preparing your tube, have both your estimated tube size plus half a size down in the event that there is difficult passage. I recommend that a stylet should always be placed in the ET tube for optimal control. Make sure the end of the stylet does not extend past the distal end of the tube to avoid damaging the airway. There are two primary blade types, and which type you select will influence your plan on how to lift the epiglottis. The two primary blade types are straight blades, brand name Miller or Phillips, and curved blades, brand name Mac. Straight blades are designed to directly lift the epiglottis. The curved, blunt-tipped blade is designed to slide above the epiglottis into the vollecula. It is critically important to have a plan based on blade type prior to inserting your blade into the oropharynx. In selecting blade size, size double zero is typically for patients less than 32 weeks gestation, size zero is typically for patients 32 weeks gestation to three months old, size one is typically for three months to two years old, size two is typically for two to 10 years of age, and size three blades are typically used from 10 years old and up. Again. These are only estimations, and the most important thing for blade sizing is to hold the blade up to the patient to confirm the blade is an appropriate length. Though this podcast will focus on direct laryngoscopy, video laryngoscopy is a tool that is becoming increasingly common in pediatric intubation. If used in your institution, it can both improve visualization for the person intubating and allow the supervising physician to offer real-time feedback and specific strategies for improvement. Before beginning an intubation, Apneic preoxygenation should be optimized with the goal of three minutes of preoxygenation via non-rebreather mask, CPAP, or bag mask ventilation. Multiple studies have shown that adequate preoxygenation decreases adverse outcomes. Now we will talk about how to safely sedate and paralyze your patient. The process of administration of a sedative followed by a paralytic agent in rapid succession followed by intubation is called rapid sequence intubation, or RSI. In general, studies have shown that success rates are higher and adverse effects are lower with the use of RSI compared to without. Significant efforts have been made to optimize the process of RSI, including work by Ben Carey at Cincinnati Children's. He found that with RSI optimization through the use of a structured checklist focused on improving preoxygenation, stopping attempts after 45 seconds to prevent adverse effects, and reducing cognitive burden, Oxyhemoglobin desaturation during intubation attempts decreased from 33% to 16%.
Now let's talk about the actual medications. Historically, pre-medications were commonly used prior to administration of sedative and paralytic agents. These pre-medications include atropine and lidocaine. Atropine has been administered to prevent reflex bradycardia in infants, and lidocaine has been administered in cases of asthma to decrease bronchospasm or increased intracranial pressure, though data is limited for this indication. Overall, the use of pre-medications is becoming less common, as a 2016 multicenter prospective study by Palin et al. evaluating trends and techniques of intubations in pediatric EDs over a 10-year period found the use of pre-medications decreased during their study, with a usage rate of less than 30% of cases. This is an area that is likely to continue to evolve. Now we will talk about the hallmark of RSI, sedatives and paralytics. Sedative agents include etomidate, ketamine, fentanyl, and benzodiazepines, like Versed. The most commonly used sedative is etomidate, with Palin et al. finding a usage rate of 78% of cases. Its benefits include rapid onset of sedation without causing hypotension or increased intracranial pressure. Previous studies have shown that etomidate may cause adrenal dysfunction when given as a continuous infusion, though it is unclear if a single dose for RSI will cause clinically relevant adrenal suppression. Given the risk for adrenal suppression, many providers will opt for our next agent, ketamine, if sepsis is high on the differential. Ketamine is a nice agent that causes catecholamine release and does not cause hypotension. The catecholamine release can also help with bronchospasm in patients with status asthmaticus. Historically, ketamine has been avoided in cases with concern for increased ICP. However, these studies were demonstrated in animal models and there is no evidence that ketamine causes elevated ICP in humans. As such, some providers choose ketamine as their primary sedative. Paralytic agents include succinylcholine and rocuronium. Succinylcholine is a depolarizing neuromuscular blocker and is the most commonly used paralytic. There is risk for hyperkalemia, so patients with the potassium greater than 5.5, suspected neuromuscular disease, or crush injuries with a prolonged entrapment will typically receive rocuronium, a non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocker. Palin et al. found that the use of rocuronium steadily increased over their 10-year study period. The most important aspect of a sedative and paralytic administration, regardless of which agents are chosen, is that they are given rapidly and in succession, allowing 30 to 45 seconds after administration for complete paralysis before an attempt is started. Continuing with the theme of decreasing cognitive burden, it is important to have consistent room, body, and equipment set up to prime yourself for physical comfort and minimal variation in things that you can control. How you position your body is a personal preference, but pay attention as you are practicing on mannequins for what feels most comfortable. I personally prefer to have the end of the patient about 9 inches away from my body and at the height of my anterior superior iliac crest. Have your blade on the left of the patient and your ET tube on the right, often in the hand of a respiratory therapist. Also, have suctioning available and ready for use, as trauma is the most common reason for intubation in the pediatric emergency department. After you position your body, pause for a brief second. Think about what type of blade you have chosen and how that will impact your plan of action. Now we will begin talking about the physical aspect of placing a tube in the trachea. I think it is critically important, especially as an early trainee, not to make the common mistake of aggressively placing your blade deep in the oropharynx and simply hoping to visualize the structures you need to see. This should be a systematic, consistent process that can help you focus on variants and troubleshoot issues as they arise. First you will need to open the mouth for blade insertion. Many providers opt to use their index finger and thumb in a scissoring motion. 
This is a very awkward motion for me, and I instead choose to place my right thumb on the middle of the tongue and push the mouth downward. I then begin blade placement and advancement. Whichever way is more comfortable for you is fine. As you enter the oropharynx with your blade, I like to place the blade in the middle of the tongue and begin movements to visualize the epiglottis. Again, while having suctioning ready as needed, slowly and deliberately advance towards the right base of the tongue, then rotate to midline as this provides good tongue control to improve visualization. As you get to the base of the tongue, the epiglottis should come into view upon lifting upwards. It is important to note that the larynx in children is typically located around the C3, C4 level compared to C4, C5 in adults. This makes visualization from the base of the tongue more of an acute angle, the so-called anterior airway, which really is more of a superior airway causing that acute angle. Now, with all of your lifting movements in an intubation, it is important to not rotate your wrist. Instead, the process of lifting involves keeping your wrist locked, using your biceps to lift your whole arm, and in larger patients, even involves the use of your shoulder and chest muscles. Now that you have visualized the epiglottis, if you're using a straight blade, place the tip of the blade under the tip of the epiglottis and lift the epiglottis to visualize the vocal cords and trachea. If you're using a curved blade, use the natural curve to slide into the vollecula superior to the epiglottis. Make sure to completely insert your blade deep into the vollecula, then lift to visualize the cords and trachea. If you happen to directly lift the epiglottis with the curved blade, you can continue on and directly lift the epiglottis instead of backing out and reattempting to place your blade into the vollecula. Using manual external pressure on the larynx is a tool that can be used in the event that you are unable to visualize the cords with the above steps. However, this should not be routine as it does not consistently improve your view. After visualizing the cords, it is important to keep your eyes on them. This is where consistent equipment setup is your friend. If your ET tube is reliably just to the right of the patient or in the hand of your trusty RT, you can keep your view without looking away. Gently slide your ET tube through the cords, remembering to pin the ET tube to the roof of the mouth at the previously estimated depth, while other members of the team can assist with securing the tube. Confirming tracheal placement via end tidal CO2 detection, aka capnography, is ideal, with additional confirmation offered by chest rise, auscultation, and x-ray. It is critically important for patient safety to stop prolonged attempts before desaturation and hemodynamic instability. Attempts should last no more than 45 seconds. If you are unsuccessful on your first attempt, reoxygenate the patient for at least one minute. During that time, take a deep breath, regroup, and evaluate what specific strategies can be implemented to improve your chances on the second attempt. Is this an unexpectedly difficult airway, and thus does a more experienced provider or even anesthesia need to do the next attempt? Do you need to downsize your tube? Do you need to switch blade size or blade type and thus epiglottic manipulation strategy? Do you need to optimize sedation or paralysis? Do you need to reposition the patient? Your second attempt should not be simply hoping things go better. Instead, have a specific strategy for improvement and implement it. All right, so in summary, Pediatric endotracheal intubation is a difficult procedure with serious adverse effects if done unsafely. As a novice trainee, take every opportunity to practice in simulations and familiarize yourself with the process, including room and body positioning, equipment selection, medication administration, and intubation techniques. Having an in-depth understanding of the process can help decrease cognitive burden and improve chances for successful intubation. The most important aspects for patient safety include using a systematic process, 
optimizing pre-oxygenation and RSI medication administration, and preventing prolonged attempts before desaturation or hemodynamic compromise. Well, that's all for this episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Another special thanks to Preston Dean, who delivered the content of this episode. I'm on Twitter at PEMTweets. And as always, PEM Blog remains your home for great pediatric emergency medicine educational content. See you next time. <laughs>